Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the show, we're going to be getting to know one of the most high-profile members of President Tsai Ing-wen's cabinet, Digital Minister Audrey Tong. Now, there's a few reasons why the good minister has been getting so much buzz in the press. Uh, first of all, there is the compelling backstory. Uh, Tong, early in life, was recognized as something of a tech prodigy. Uh, she dropped out of school to go on later to found a tech startup at the ripe old age of 16. Must have gone pretty well for her because she retired from the tech sector in her early 30s. And then, in 2014, went on to lend her considerable talents to the Sunflower Student Movement. A couple of other important points. She's also the cabinet's youngest member at 35 and Taiwan's first openly transgender politician. So it's not too hard to understand where the public interest is coming from here. What takes a little bit more effort at least if you're me, is understanding exactly what her job is. Okay, so her title, as I mentioned, is Digital Minister. A cabinet spokesman has said that that means she's responsible for the digital economy and open government. Okay, but what does that mean? Well, I spent about an hour in Audrey's office at the Executive UN talking through exactly what that means. And lucky for the show, I brought along a recorder, so you can hear that conversation too. And here it is. Minister Tong, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for, well, letting me join you. In your office, of course. Uh, so I, I, I would be the one joining you, so thank you for that. Just to start things off, uh, let's look at how you got here in uh, this very nice office that we found ourselves in in the very first place. Of course, uh, your life path brings you through Silicon Valley and the tech sector and the private sector. Uh, quite quite a history there, developing a, a lot of uh, tech innovation. Uh, but then you took a very hard right turn into the realm of uh, governance, uh, and that path led you through the Sunflower Movement uh, and then working with the last government and now actually into the very halls of power themselves. So I'm very curious on your thinking of why it was important to you to actually get involved in all of this. Sure, certainly. Um, my work uh, actually has been more or less the same uh, in the past uh, 20 years or so. Uh, I was there when the web was being invented and the Internet society, the Internet community at the time, we were very hard on some of those uh, very interesting governance questions like how would we involve more private sector people without sacrificing the, the early freedom of the freedom of speech of assembly online? How do we preserve the culture of an open internet, of internet neutrality, while allowing you know each telecom operator and each um, nation state even to claim they are part of the interest in this and so on? And the internet community is, while you know there's some uh, rooms for improvement in in areas like inclusivity and so on, but it's essentially remaining a very multi-stakeholder, not uh, dominated by any particular state, um, this kind of governance structure. And it is actually the first governance structure that I uh, learned from when I was only 13 at the time. And so um, from the very beginning of my learning, I've always learned from the public domain works, from the early internet pioneers, from the people working in the Gutenberg project who digitized the early classical um, scholarships and the classical authorships and everything like that. And so as these are the core of my learnings, I am, of course, very interested in preserving this, some people would say, anarchistic uh, foundation of the, the governance model that governs the early web and, by extension, the, the entire digital innovations that uh, followed afterwards. So um, it is because of this that I want to uh, preserve or sometimes conserve uh, the the early tradition of the anarchistic collaboration where people could n only convince each other using arguments, using rational you know, lines of reasoning, because the internet community doesn't have an army, it doesn't have a navy. Uh, all we can do is try to communicate with people in the world to convince people that letting us to become a you know, neutral, collaborative, inclusive entity is to the benefit of the humankind. And so this is essentially what I'm still doing now. 
Mm. Well, you don't have an army or a navy just yet, but you do have a staff, so that's a step up. So it sounds like what you're saying is basically you feel like there is something in that culture, in that early internet culture, that was missing from governance here in Taiwan. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what exactly that is, what you were seeing that told you that there was something there that you wanted to add in. Certainly. Uh, this is what we call a multi-stakeholder model, meaning that uh, when we're working on a law affecting the Internet, we don't call them laws, we call them requests for comments, meaning that we ask the entire Internet community, anyone who would be in, uh, affected by any of those changes in the code that we're doing, to come forward and participate in like consultative discussions, be it face-to-face -face or online. And so really there's three differences. One is that it's completely transparent. Everything happens on mailing lists, on online forums, and everybody can see the whole record of how we got here in the first place. And the uh, second part is that it's participatory, meaning that uh, the Internet really exists as a consensus of people running these computers agree on some protocol. So without the broad agreement of people adopting this protocol, there really is no Internet. And because of this, every change has to be voluntary. People has to be actually sign up on the new version of the Internet protocol before the protocol gets widely adopted. So it's because of this that uh, the engagement of the stakeholder communities are put into the foremost prominence of the governance model. That's the second part. And the third part, I think, uh, and even more importantly, is that everything uh, is accountable, meaning that you can go back and look at every change in the RFC and every implementation details and found who exactly where proposed that. So there is a audit trail of sorts of all the laws. And uh, when I'm talking about laws, this is laws of code. It's more like physical laws. It uh, regulates what's possible and what's not on the internet. It's not really legal code, but it is carries even more force than legal code in some cases like in blockchain and in other um, technological mechanisms. But the entire idea is that there is an audit trail to each and every code decisions. Now, granted, there could be some uh, technocratic elements in it. There could be parts that only an expert could look at and understand and so on, which is why we need to work on inclusiveness and accessibility and more outreach. But all in all, I do think there are elements in this radically transparent governance structure that a you know national state governance structure can learn from, especially during the transparency and participatory uh, crisis of, of faith in democracy that we're currently facing. Well, you know, you've, you've thrown me a little bit off balance because honestly, I was going to wait until later in the interview before we uh, got real philosophical about stuff. But since you took us here anyway, uh, let's hang out here for a little bit. So maybe you could talk a little bit more. I mean, now that you have an office here, I'm sure that you're a little bit reluctant to get uh, too critical, too negative. But clearly, I mean, you're highlighting this set of values that you have uh, that you think are very positive and should be transferred. And the implicit, you know, statement that you're making is that that wasn't here before and that what was here before wasn't quite up to the task uh, of what you think the government should be doing. So maybe you could talk about the ways in which you think the government has perhaps fallen short and why this sort of new thinking, or I guess not super new, but transplanted thinking, uh, is necessary. Certainly. Well, I wouldn't say that it's fallen up short. I would say that it's um, mostly done by the previous generation of technology. I mean... Um, Radio and television, they were invented like long before the internet. And with radio and television, as we're working now... Hey, let's, let's not get personal. Let's not get too personal. <laughs> right. Um, but with, with radio, I mean, um, millions of people can listen to, to the way we're talking about right now, right? But uh, with this radio technology, there's no way for both of us to listen to the millions of people who will listen to this um, talk between us. So in a sense, it's asymmetric technology, right? It lets um, millions of people listen to one or two person, but it doesn't let one or two person listen to millions of people. Now, with uh, the Internet, of course, this is what we call the mass self-communication, meaning that people can select who to listen to. Uh, but still, there is no way for uh, the governance structure to systematically run a millions people consultative process and let these people listen to each other. And this is um, what we have done in the Internet community, especially in the web community, uh, for ages now. But uh, in, in the current political climate, it is perhaps not the, the most, um, what, would, what would we say, uh, it is not part of a democratic tradition for us to say, okay, before a referendum, maybe we should listen to each other for much 
longer. Uh, maybe before each voting, there should be a much more informative uh, communication between the different parts of the stakeholder community and things like that. So while the multi-stakeholder deliberations or deliberative democracy is always part of political theory, there's um, no much room for it to grow if you work with only the previous generation of pen and paper or maybe with radio and television technologies because then the only way to listen to millions of people is to send millions of people to listen to each other one by one. So so now that we have a current generation of technology using machine learning and using a lot of other assistive technical tools, we can actually now uh, listen to millions of people with some degree of um, success. So it's because of this that I'm uh, experimenting with this as if in a laboratory uh, on various uh, public governance topics. It's because we're early in this new kind of what, we, what I call scalable listening technologies that we need to uh, tailor make it to each different uh, specific policy issues. But there is always room for improvement and it's always better already than the previous generation of technology. Still a place for radio, guys. I promise you, there's still a place for radio. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe our fans can broadcast to us one day, and we can listen in. Uh, okay, well, let's get even more specific. I mean, you're talking about some of the deficiencies that we see in any kind of democratic system. I mean, I, I, I've been hearing this sort of idea applied to democratic systems around the world. Just basically, you know, we're using a 19th century technology. Uh, or even an 18th century technology to fix 21st century problems, and it just isn't quite up to the task, given the complexity of our of the world that we live in, uh, and expecting you know one elected representative to actually understand, and, and two political parties to actually understand and represent so many people, it gets a, a somewhat absurd at a certain point. But let's get even more specific in terms of how you think this could change things. I mean, let's look back to your first taste of getting really involved in Taiwan politics, the Sunflower Movement. Of course, that was sparked by uh, the government's moves to pass forward a, uh, a trade agreement uh, with a service trade agreement with China. Uh, now, do you think, let's just do a, a hypothetical situation. Do you think that if some of the tools that you're talking about uh, were at the disposal of the government at the time? Would that have turned out differently? Uh, do you think that they would have been more responsive to the concerns of people and perhaps the Sunflower Movement wouldn't have been necessary? Is that what you're getting at? Well, the Sunflower Movement is a demonstration. It's not a demonstration only in the protesting in the street sense, but it's also a demonstration of the technologies that we're talking about. It is a demonstration because the MPs at those time, the members of parliament, were on strike, essentially, because they, they said it's not their job to deliberate that particular trade service agreement. So uh, the occupiers, what they did, essentially, is to deliberate it on MPs' behalf. Because the MPs were on strike, of course the occupiers could um, go go there and deliberate on exactly the same topic. And what I did at the time was not taking any particular sides, but rather uh, developing the kind of listening technologies that let anything and everything that happened within the uh, parliament, the occupied parliament, and also in the streets um, surrounding the occupied parliament, each one was basically uh, populated with people in a, in a very different view of the trade service agreement. We have the green, uh, ecologically-minded people here. Uh, we have the labor-minded people there, the left-wing people, and also the separatist uh, independence people, right? And so each street held their own deliberations. The Occupy Parliament also held their deliberations. And uh, as the ICT geeks, we also built, uh, with eight months before, um, we worked for eight months to build one particular app that lets you enter your company's name or the trade that your company is doing and look at exactly the part in the cross-trade service trade agreement that affects you. So you don't have to read through 500 pages of PDF files. There is this kind of factual evidence-based tools that lets you make informed decisions. And now uh, we also, during the Occupy, uh, not only videotape uh, all the deliberations that happened, but also work with stenographic uh, transcript people to type it down to those uh, documents, which are collaborative edited and then translate to various other languages. So what this does is essentially a cross-pollination between all the different occupied side streets so that people begin each day not over 
uh, the same topics, but picking up uh, of the consensus items that was left the previous day, that was undecided the previous day, and then do a deliberation for an entire day involving as much as half a million people on one particular day. And then uh, the next day, although with different people, can pick up where the previous day has, has left. Right. So this is basically the scalable listening technology that uh, we have deployed during the Occupy with help with um, professional, um, professional um, deliberative democracy facilitators to make sure that be it uh, a ordinary citizen, be it someone who feels concerned about democracy, uh, whichever side of the street they, they went on, there is some deliberative space for them to join and to participate their part in the collective intelligence about the cross-strait servitor agreement. And it evidently works because toward the end of the Occupy, there is a set of consensus that people could not... 100% agree on, but at least could live with. And these are the kind of consensus items that the head of the uh, parliament at the time uh, eventually agreed on, which is why the occupiers left the building. It's not because they were evicted, but their main demands were agreed upon. So basically, you've just turned my question around on me. I asked, would things have turned out better at that time if this sort of technology, this sort of thinking was available? What you're saying is it was available and it did turn out better because of it. Exactly. All right, so let's move forward in time just a little bit to the projects that uh, you're working on now. Uh, I guess since we're on the topic of uh, digital democracy and how we can communicate better with the public and how the public can communicate better with the government, uh, let's perhaps start right there. And uh, you've already kind of outlined a couple of projects that you had uh, going while the Sunflower Movement was happening to help facilitate that sort of process. Maybe you can bring us up to date, because I know that that's one of the things that you think about, work on a lot here, is ways to make the government in power work better. Uh, and, and there's no possible way that we can go into detail in all of the various uh, programs that you're working on. So maybe uh, if you could, just pick one to highlight and explain a, how it works, and maybe B, how it uh, fosters some of uh, the ideals that you've been talking about so far. All right, so I'll just pick a, a tiny, tiny case because it's um, very self-contained. It only uh, contains maybe one public hearing and three meetings, and we did get a broad consensus out of it. Um, so I'll talk about very briefly the eSport case, uh, because in Taiwan, um, the eSport or 电子竞技 electronic competition um, has for a very long time no ministry willing to, to claim the ownership of it. Uh, the result being that um, those large-scale like competition of LLL or other electronic esports uh, cannot, for example, rent a Taipei Dome or, for example, uh, get uh, foreign visitors as let's visa and things like this. And there's a, a broad misunderstanding on the society. It's almost like a generational gap between the digital natives who generally understand this as a, a esport as kind of contest of skills and something that's just a lot of fun versus people who did not have first-hand experience and see it as some kind of video games and waste of time. And what's your game? What's my game? Uh, XCOM two and then Civilization. Uh, in Civilization, all, yes. Yeah, in all its versions, uh, <laughs> and then um, in the Battle of West Nose and NetHack. Uh, I've played NetHack for a very long time. So in any case, um, what I'm I'm trying to aim to is that this is a classical um, issue of the out of the misunderstanding of the basic facts, like people couldn't really agree whether um, electronic e-sport is a kind of sport or whether it's kind of physical education, TU, or whether it's a kind of skill or whether it's kind of culture and, and things like this, right? So uh, during a public hearing, uh, and it's different from other public hearings, not only because it's hosted by three different uh, parties in the members of parliaments, but also because it was stenographed, everything was transcribed uh, using sunflower-like technology. So everybody speaks knowing that whatever they say will be entered into this binding space where uh, I would coordinate with all the ministries to look at each of the words the Aslet said and try to find a resolution to some of the issues that they have raised. Primary among those is, of course, uh, whether they could be um, 
there there's a military draft in in Taiwan, right? And if you're a professional athlete or if you're a professional Wei Qi Go player, then you can go and serve at alternate kind of draft, working to further your game, basically. Um, and but their esport because there's no you know game status of it, it's not subject to it. And on the other hand, there's also some schools who want to open、um, the special classes, specializing or attracting people who are more into esport gaming. And then teach them maybe about the general internet media and communication strategy and all those related digital production skills. But before it could be classified as one, you know, trade or the other, there is no such class possible, and I'm afraid the parents would probably oppose to it. So、uh, what I have done is essentially do a coordination meeting that、uh, assembles all the facts that the ministry have,、uh, so that we understand esport is not a physical education because it's much more intellectual than physical. But then, on the other hand, it is a skillful competition, and it is a kind of a culture, and the minister of culture is okay with it. And then we release whatever、uh, we have as a factual level on- online, because all the meetings that I hold is published in its entirety in as transcripts online. And because of this,、um, the athletes, the professional,、um, you know, esport gaming leagues, and、uh, and so on, then went to my public Q and A site to provide me with a lot of information that was missing. Because if we are Just you, as policymakers in in this meeting room, even though it's a pretty good meeting room,、uh, we we still lack a lot of、uh, evidences and、uh, hard facts that could be observed by the civil society and by the private sector. So after their contribution, we held a second、um, consultative meeting between all the ministries, basically just checking、uh, those. Inputs from the BBS, the P- PTT BBS, from all those internet online discussion boards, and fact checking whether these are, you know, factual. And and people would say, if you follow this kind of regulation, you could have actually a alternate,、um, you know, path for the people getting drafted who are professional as、uh, esport athletes and so on. So after checking this and making sure that people's feelings are generally covered,、uh, we move from the fi-、uh, facts to the feelings stage, where I ask all the ministries to share their feelings. Of those, you know, facts and whether they're okay with it, and it turns out people are generally okay with it,、uh, with with this kind of new arrangements, with the、um, s- schools opening up. Uh, new classes catering for for esport、uh, athletes and having esport athletes basically classified as intellectual skill instead of a physical education athlete and、uh, enjoying the same、uh, protection or the same、uh, alternate drafting plan in the military and so on and so and then we release that also to the public and then the the leagues the associations specializing in esport would join us on the third meeting to work work out the details of how exactly they can help in this kind of Implementation plan that the government is planning on having, and which we just had, and so、uh, by the time you listen to this, it's probably also published in its entirety. So basically, by the end of each meeting, we use the same color coding technology we used、uh, during those、uh, deliberations by saying, "Okay, this is now green light, meaning that everybody can agree with it. It's yellow light, meaning that we have to agree、uh, on it after some external ha- factor has happened, or it's red light, meaning it's not legally or physically possible." And fortunately. For the、uh, esport case, every yellow light has since then turned into green light, and so the MPs, the ministries, and the、uh, stakeholders behind this ministry and athletes themselves all contributed to our final decision, and it's done in the open, it's completely transparent, and now we have a good classification and a legal basis for the esport、um, community to to move forward. So it's a very small case; it's just one public hearing and three meetings, but it shows the the essential idea of not having any meeting go to waste. By having each meeting basically recorded and having the camera representing the missing stakeholders that couldn't make it here, maybe just to help、uh, those of us that you know weren't actually a part of all these meetings and all that understand what would you say is is the essential thing that's really different from the way this sort of issue may have worked through the public system before? Because I mean, part of what's happening here is you, as a minister, see an issue that you care about and you feel like isn't getting enough attention. You bring in the stakeholders, you get them to talk about it, and you work it through the system. Nothing about that is new,、uh, but you did highlight a number of ways that、uh, you were using technology to move the process along. I'm wondering if you could maybe highlight a little bit even more clearly what you feel is essentially new about the way that you managed to get this through that wouldn't have been possible, you know, without the technology or without this way of thinking about、uh, digital democracy. 
Certainly, I think the the one main difference is that when I'm talking about stakeholder inputs, I mean stakeholders that I don't personally know. Because when this is published to the online discussion boards, I really don't know who exactly is going to provide their input back. And previously,、uh, without this kind of online consultational、uh, mechanisms, there, there really is no way to talk to non-specific non-specific people. So what ends up is that heads of associations or、um, heads of representatives who claims to speak on behalf of the stakeholders ends up getting all the inputs into the policymaking process. But most of the、um, decision That we make at at this、uh, iteration of the esport、uh, consultative process are actually the input from、uh, individual athletes, and those individual athletes are sometimes pseudonymous.、Uh, they're just one nick or one handle on the internet. But they provide、uh, insight that are otherwise not possible or not going to be represented by the heads of associations, for example. And so、um, I think really the the only difference here and the primary difference here is that I've. In- Added a input channel for non-specific people who don't have to re- reveal their real identity,、uh, but just providing hard facts and their feelings toward whatever process that we're making. And this is basically a trust to people. Who does not trust us enough yet to reveal their real identities? Because trust, you see, is mutual.、Um, if the government doesn't trust its people, there's no way for the people to trust the government. And even if we trust the people fully, there's always people who don't trust the government yet to show up in person in public hearings. Right? They would rather remain pseudonymous. And But even for these people, if they have something、uh, new to say, if they have some constructive opinions, there's now a systematic way to include their opinions into the final policymaking process, and for them to track that actually their input has been made into this particular line, in this particular red or yellow light and indicator. And I think this part is new, and we wouldn't have arrived to this workable conclusion this quickly and this, you know, with this kind of efficiency if not for the input for those pseudonymous、uh, input sources. Uh, I, I actually think it's really interesting what you're what you're talking about in terms of、uh, the government trusting the people and the people trusting the government, because one、uh, an- another area that you're clearly also very interested in is government transparency, and、uh, that is shown by the fact of all the documentation that goes into the deliberation process. And, and I think some people might question、uh, the wisdom of making government hyper. Uh, Hyper transparent because sometimes you really do need for very sensitive issues. Perhaps you do need politicians to have that space to make the difficult decisions behind closed doors.、Uh, and so I'm wondering if、uh, what you just had to say there about、uh, the government trusting the people has anything to do with that dilemma. Perhaps if the government can trust that the people will not freak out every second, perhaps it it can be more、uh, transparent. But Uh, that's just what I'm thinking about it. I'll throw it back to you.、Uh, how, how, how do you get past that issue of, you know, on the one hand, the government needs a certain amount of space to make sensitive decisions, and on the other hand, the people need a way to provide oversight. Well, I mean, it's not like we live stream all these meetings. We don't.、Uh, what we did was we do a full recording or we do a real time stenography, and then、uh, we make a full transcript, and then we let everybody who participate in the meeting to edit the transcript. So if they feel that they have said something that could be taken out of context, well, they can change it to provide a full context. If they feel like they have spoken something that would violate as a Her party's privacy, perhaps, although we haven't yet run into these cases, they could take that part out.、Um, but of course, all those edits are also seen by everybody else attending the meeting, so you can't really put words into mine because I would know about it. But it also pro- provides a safe space for all the participants to know that they they are able to come up with you know supplemental materials and additional context before it was published ten days after the meeting. So it is a kind of a bridge. You know, it's not completely saying that there's no closed room for deliberation、uh, for the participants, but also after ten days, the participant feels safe enough to ask the entire general public, not necessarily people who are stakeholders, just random passerbys, for for information, for for input, for you know anything. And what this does basically is establishing a connection between one meeting and the other, because one of the most avid readers of our public records. 
it's are not the general public. It's the staff of the you know heads of offices and ministry who participate in this meeting because they would go back and assign those tasks to their staffs. And it's very important for the staff to know not only the conclusion of the meeting but how we get there. What was the alternate path that we tried and then discarded? During our discussion, so they would not have to try it again. Right, it's not necessarily the guy getting off his nine to five job that's going to be wading through hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes. It's uh, you're, you're saying even within the government, this level of transparency can also be very important. Right, because it facilitates trust between ministries, between departments, because then every ministry and department see what objective, what key results other ministries and other departments are doing. What are they optimizing for, so to speak? So they could try to find synergies.、Uh, in the previous generation. With pen and paper, and you know only the the key results after each meeting is recorded, but not the entire process. You you can you know maybe reverse engineer between the words a little bit about how we got there, but there is no foundation of trust between the different ministry who participate in the same meeting. Oh my God! I mean, just imagine, yeah, just taking the U.S. example. Just imagine if the founding fathers had left that kind of a paper trail, we could finally know what they meant by、uh, right to bear arms, for example.、It、could be a total game changer. Um, let's switch gears entirely right here, actually,、uh, and look at another area that you're very focused on. That being more the industry side of things, the infrastructure side of things, making sure that Taiwan has the sort of tech resources that it needs to、uh, prosper in a number of different ways.、Um, and let's start with a program called the、uh, Digi Plus program. Am I saying that right? Digi Plus. Yeah. All right.、Uh, and this is a multi-billion-dollar program that's going to take place over several years to help boost Taiwan's digital infrastructure. And here I'm just reading from the published material. It will quote create an innovative, friendly environment for the digital industry and increase internet usage penetration. So、uh, maybe you could. Exp- I, I, it seems like the, the the big idea here is keeping the internet moving at a faster and faster and faster rate, making sure that Taiwan's internet,、uh, you know, stays modern, stays、uh, up to date.、Uh, interested in hearing、uh, your thoughts on how we get there, what sort of work needs to be done to make sure that Taiwan stays on track,、uh, but also why this is an area. That really does need special focus. I mean, all of us、uh, living in Taiwan—it's just remarkable how good the internet works already.、Um, especially coming from the U.S. or I, you know, I lived for a time in Beijing. There's no comparison. Tai, tai, Taiwan is head and shoulders above everybody else.、Uh, so why is this still something that really needs to be a focus to make sure that it continues getting even better and better? Certainly. Um, okay, so we're switching gears.、Um, I was ready to talk about Federalist Papers.、Um, hey, if you want to go into that, we can go into that. Go ahead. No.、Um, so about the DG Plus plan.、Um, Yes,、uh, according to the World Economic Forums,、um, what you just talk about—the ICT readiness—meaning that people who want high-speed bandwidth can get high-speed bandwidth and so on—Taiwan、uh, has been on the second place in the world for two years running now.、Um, it's I think Finland, Taiwan, and Iceland、um, in in this particular、uh, rank. So what what we mean is that the infrastructure, the broadband, the, even the mobile broadband, is in actually a very good shape because, well. Taiwan is a small island with a lot of people, and as a small island, it is easier for us、um, than many other countries to get, you know, the basic 4G and mobile internet stations、uh, set up. So that's something that we intend to continue.、Um, as part of、uh, President Tsai Ing-wen's、uh, campaign,、uh, what she promised is that、uh, we need to make this、uh, mobile. Internet or broadband internet, but mostly just access to internet as a kind of basic human right. This is saying that if there are more disadvantaged households who would prefer to spend, you know, their daily money on something else than the internet access, we should at least guarantee maybe 10 megabits per second、uh, broadband access so that they have a chance to hook into the digital economy. And also because the government digital services we're going to provide is going to To be over not pen and paper, but over the internet mostly、mm-hmm. from from this point on. So it is very important that we don't create an artificial division or a gap between the haves and have-nots in the society. Maybe you could tell me. I mean, I, I, this is probably pretty clearly a, a blind spot on my part because everywhere I go in Taiwan, everybody has a phone. But、uh, how, how how big of an issue is that? How how big of Taiwan's population right now is actually cut out from the kind of internet, the speed of internet that most of us enjoy? 
Well, if you、um, disregard the remote islands and like Taiping Islands and so on, then、um, I think it is about two percent、uh, in Taiwan who doesn't yet have one hundred megabits、um, access. So it's not a lot of places, but it is some number of people. As I said, it's socially disadvantaged households who would not、uh, even given the chance、uh, to to pay for broadband internet access because they have much more, in,、uh, you know, pressing、uh, needs to to pay for. So this is basically subsidizing a certain level of internet access,、uh, more so than you know getting broadband to all the physical places which we're already almost there. So this is、uh, Dr.、Um, Dr. Tsai Ing-wen's basic idea, and we're implementing this、uh, in maybe three years to to get all the social disadvantaged households some、uh, basic broadband internet access. But if you look at the World Economic Forum.、Um, Ratings.、Um, we are really, really good on the readiness, but not so good at the actual usage and impact. And the environment, meaning the regulatory environment, is actually declining.、Uh, what this means is that while the basic、uh, ICT、um, infrastructure is pretty good in Taiwan, Taiwan doesn't have a very good regulatory environment in which that、um, if you do some. Uh, trade or some、uh, activity over the internet. There's no reliable、uh, way for a judge to look at this and connect it to some sort of. Uh, ruling in the civil code, two different judges at this moment may judge differently. Because what kind of case would this come up in? A lot, like what what kind of、uh, speech is infringing on perhaps the the rights of naming? What kind of libel it is online? What kind of、um, you know communication over the internet is?、Um, For example, radio. Radio is a very good example because using the old、uh, communication law, there is one broadcaster and there is many receivers. But on the case of internet radio, currently there is some kind of radio environments where you can listen to the radio but still type something so that the host can can see what you're you're typing. And but in this case, is the person typing this comment also a broadcaster? And is the broadcaster now suddenly the receiver? The law isn't very clear on this. So when、uh, a strict Basically,、uh, one-directional communication mode has switched to the internet. This is what we call OTT, over the top,、um, over the top of the internet infrastructure. It enables not only a broader bandwidth, but also different kinds of modes of connection that the listeners are now also able to broadcast not only their own voices, but also provide real-time connection via a chat room or whatever between themselves. But whether they're now still the audience or they're also broadcasters isn't that clear. Uh, from the perspective of a legal、um, code、uh, department, so what this does is basically saying、uh, we need to reconcile what's actually happening over the internet through not only the emulation of radio, but also augmentation and supplementing the traditional radio format, and try to make sure that everybody is a a peer in this peer-to-peer -peer network on the internet and regulate it in a way that says, okay, maybe the government doesn't want to regulate. Internet radio broadcaster just the the same way as traditional radio broadcaster because after all there's no scarcity of spectrum and and things like this. But if we try to regulate it still in a way that you know reflects the old regulatory regime when there is a scarcity of spectrum, then we would end up in some very convoluted legal cases that doesn't. Exactly apply to internet radio and things like this. So it's important to have a basic what we call the Digital Telecommunication Act that defines exactly what it is like to provide and listen and interact with radio on the internet, so that people know exactly what to expect from the the legal code. So what you're saying is is I need to find the online forum that you set up for this and start giving my two cents. Yeah, exactly. We, we did run actually the Telecommunication Act、uh, before, and the new draft is coming up any any day now. All right, I gotta I gotta get on that. Oh no! So this is very interesting because you know when I when I look at this bill, th this just shows the the low level of understanding that I'm coming into this with. When I look at this bill, I just see a big pot of money, and my image is that it's just gonna all go towards infrastructure, making better fiber optic cables or whatever. I don't know anything. What you're saying is is it's actually a whole lot broader than that. There's a whole Range of issues that you need to think about to not just make the speed of the internet meet some number.、Uh, it's it's also about making a healthy environment, and that is a tricky thing to do.
Exactly.、Um, to have a healthy environment, it also helps to bring up people in this、um, idea that the digital economy or the di- digitization of everything basically is turning what we call the artificial distinctions be- between the industries and between the trades, between the fields, all but disappear. Right?、Uh, radio and television was different industries, not because they have they are naturally different industry, but because they require different equipments. But and well. Some of our faces aren't quite built for TV as well. Well, yeah, but there's virtual reality, and you can synthesize your <laughs> models actually very easily with just your voice and the mouth and hand movements matches、uh, what you have said. This is what I do when I do video interviews. I just send my avatars through. <laughs> so I could have Brad Pitt reading the news with my voice. Exactly.、Nice. Yes. So、um, as I said, as everything become、uh, digital,、um, the artificial lines between the previous difference in hardware of radio and television and all those different communication modes all but disappear. It's now just、um, bits over the internet, and how those bits in the internet are arranged share the same basic infrastructure. If you have a basic infrastructure for internet TV, you have the same infrastructure for internet radio. It is really the same thing. So、um, people who train for different trades, people who、uh, receive different trainings through、uh, university or through their high schools, are now facing a world in which that those arbitrary distinctions between the industries are are blurring and disappearing. So、uh, another part of the Digi Plus plan is what we call Digi Plus Talent, is to get people to think. Outside of the disciplinary box, it's not getting everybody into computer science. But with this kind of digital thinking,、uh, people can major in many different things. People can major in, you know, majors that didn't exist four years before. They could just create their own traits、um, based on their understanding of the digital arrangements and combinations with any of those creative vehicles that they may want to experiment with, be it fabrication or clothing or, or augmented reality or whatever. Right. So. So this is a kind of education regime that we had not yet tried before, especially in this examination-oriented Taiwanese、uh, education. So,、um, starting 2018, we're trying to switch track to a new curriculum design where we put autonomy and communication and the common good first, and discard everything else because we stopped. Predicting、uh, what the world will be like when the seven-year-old enters the school system this year, what the world will be like twelve years in the future, we don't know. And what we think is important is still that they remain autonomous. They were able to learn whatever trade that comes up in the next twelve years, and there they keep communicating and keep working for the common good. And then this is also part of a Digi Plus plan that changes the relationship between the education system and the learners. It's now mostly the learners. What they want to learn, and for the education system and the entire society to provide the resources that they need. All right,、uh, we're gonna switch gears one last time and just take a kind of forward-looking approach to this next part. I mean,、uh, maybe we could just kind of finish some of the thoughts that we've already introduced, whether it be about the digital infrastructure or whether it be about、uh, digital democracy. Anything there? I'm curious to hear. I mean, you 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 characterize yourself as an anarchist in some interviews. I've heard you say that. Now the anarchist is in government, which is a conundrum. Perhaps we can put off for another day, but. In general, I mean, you clearly are somebody with a very different image for what government can be, should be, will be、uh, in the future. And I, I, it's, from what you're saying, the same goes for the way that industry should develop over time. You, you clearly have a different image、uh, for how that could all work. And so, I'm just, just a very open-ended question. Maybe you could give for our listeners some of the things that you would like to see on on, on any of the、uh, various topics that we've already covered today. What are what are some of the trajectories? Some of the targets that you would like to see in the mid, medium, long term in Taiwan. What does Taiwan look like in Audrey Tong's, you know, science fiction version of it? Right.、Um, well, the best way to predict the future is just to invent it. So I'm just going to list some of the concrete ways that I'm、uh, living the the change, so to speak. But as an anarchist, there's really no dilemma for me because as an anarchist, what I 
mean by anarchism is just to not obey commands, nor do I give commands. And、uh, this is interesting because during the negotiations that I have with the premier, I entered the cabinet as kind of a bridge between the civil society and the private sector and the government, meaning that I do not look at confidential information, I do not look at national security. So anything that passes through my eyes is, by definition, freedom of information access compatible. And it is on this ground that I can live this. Kind of、um, autonomous team building that everybody in my team is not really listening to my commands. They decide their own objective, their own key results, and things like this. So this is really already a change of the governance because at, in previously in in many government structures it is the boss who dictates the the key performance、uh, metrics, and it is the the person, the underlings who who delivers those results and and so on. But In my office, it doesn't work like that. It is a collaborative space where anybody is, you know, free to propose, to pitch some idea that they see needs doing, and then to call for collaborative help from any of those, you know, fifteen now、uh, collaborators, and soon to be joined by the principal offices of open government in each ministry、uh, to to try to make it happen. And so this is a kind of a a. Almost a collaborative syndicate、uh, kind of way to to run a、uh, a team, and this is not that unusual in Silicon Valley startups. Many startups starts this way. GitHub starts this way. Valve,、uh, to to many degrees, is still running in this way. So,、um, but what is different, perhaps, is that there is now a room in the national administration for this kind of governance structure to happen. And what we do is that we share the rules, the playbooks, the tools that we use to make this happen on our website, pdis.tw, pdis for public digital innovation space. What we are trying to do here is to Have other ministries to look at the tools that we're using, and they were going to be certified in the government cloud. So unlike you know Dropbox or Google Drive or whatever other external tools, these are safe tools that are open source and free to use within the government cloud. So if and when. They voluntarily, because I don't give commands,、uh, find those tools and this kind of collaborative culture interesting. Then they can just take it and use it with no cost whatsoever. And so this is、uh, how we're trying to get this maybe a meme, a virus of the mind to to spread. That sometimes it is more efficient if you work in a transparent way. Sometimes it is more useful if you trust the collective intelligence to provide input to your work. And sometimes it is really a good idea. To engage machine learning and some artificial intelligence to help you to transcribe your audios or to schedule your meetings or to help you in in whatever other way and leave the you know valuable work to to human beings instead of having the human beings repeat the work、uh, that we can now. Delegate to machine intelligence to to do so. Also, all these are just the kind of demonstrations that I'm doing in administration, and I wouldn't say it's the science fiction of culture because we're living it right now.、Uh, what we are not doing is to to directly order any other administrative agencies to adopt this because first we're still experimenting. We're not sure 100% is a good idea yet, and second, it has to be a cultural change from the department itself. It doesn't work if we just you know.、Uh, Command people to not obey commands. It doesn't work like this, right? So there have to be a voluntary、uh, culture change. So I wouldn't say、uh, it's something that we would be seeing. It's rippling out maybe in just a few months' time. But if you give it four years, five years, then I, I'm sure that the new generation of digital natives who enter public service would then prefer to work with the same kind of tools and kind of spirit that they have grew up with. How how hopeful are you that this is? I mean, obviously you're saying that it's still very experimental. It's in the mad scientist sort of phase, and、uh, hopefully people see it and like it and、uh, adopt it. But obviously, any government, especially governments, are, are are notoriously difficult to reform, and culture runs deep, and all that. And we've、uh, certainly touched on that earlier in this conversation. How hopeful are you that you know a, a you might have the opportunity, or or the folks that you work with might have the opportunity to spread this to the rest of the government, and it, it really could make a, a significant dent in the way people think about government and the way that Taiwan's government operates in the future. 
Well, I mean,、uh, whenever I I talk about this in to our international friends, they they get very inspired. So part of this is already making its way to the Madrid City Council of our. Places. So what I'm saying is, it doesn't have to. When I'm talking about a meme, it doesn't have to be a local thing, right? It's just like、um, you know, traveling virus of the mind. Whenever some part of our、uh, team goes on a conference and so on,、uh, other you know. Digital systems、uh, counterparts in other governments hear some of the tools and method we're using, and then just work it into their team's culture. There's a very similar team,、uh, the GDS team now in Australia, in New Zealand, in Singapore, in every places that we've been to, and we're not pioneers on every regards, right? We learn also our methods from our counterparts around the world. So I would say this is a collaborative network of innovators inside the government around the world. We make mistakes.、Uh, we sometimes get some success stories. But what's important is that we work in the open and share the tools internationally, so that people can pick up and, and run with it. And when there are more proven cases necessary from Taiwan of those tools actually affecting a change, then makes it much easier for us then to work in Taiwan's context. Saying you you see these places have already made it work, so now we can work on a much more mature set of construction of technologies and vice versa. There are people in the UK who. Look in Taiwan. Say, hey, they're they're looking at this process. Even people in Taiwan can do that. Of course, people in UK can do this too, and so on. So this is a very good kind of cross pollination that we've been always working in the society of the internet and web makers, and we're just trying to do this in the public service context. All right, and the last question I'm going to throw at you, and、uh, this one is very self-serving,、uh, just because I have you right now. And when else will I have this opportunity to ask this question? Some of the answers I'm going to be honest that you've given me today have made me a little nervous. I mean, you're talking about in the future we can have avatars that can look whatever we want. We can give them voices like whatever we want. We can crowdsource the things that they're saying. It sounds an awful lot like you're saying we're not going to need radio broadcasters anymore in a few years, and that's making me a little nervous. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not.、Uh, I notice that you're a very good listener, and machine doesn't replace listening anytime soon. Because to listen, you really have to be authentically yourself and merge your feelings and your horizons with another person. So there's always a room for you know authentic. Dialogue and conversation between people, but whether it's through radio, or through internet radio, or through virtual reality, that's the you know the the worries of the medium, right? But this kind of authentic communication between one person and the other, that's going to be relevant for a very long time. Phew! All right, that、uh, that helps some of my concern there. Thank you for that point. All right. Well, we have of course been speaking today to Digital Minister Audrey Tang. Audrey, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. Well, this is、uh, normally the part of the show where I would go on to tell you all the times where you can find Taiwan Talk broadcast on ICRT FM 100.、Uh, except、uh, after this week, it is not going to be broadcast on ICRT FM 100, at least not for a little bit,、uh, because this is my last week here as a full-time member of the ICRT news team. Uh, in a couple of months, I'll be heading back to the U.S., and as such,、uh, Taiwan Talk is going to be put on hold at, at, at least for a little bit. Of course,、uh, ICRT might find somebody new to host the show, or they might start something new. Really hard to say at this point.、Uh, we'll be looking to find that out over the next couple of months. So we'll have to see where we go from there. In the meantime. Just to keep this podcast stream going,、uh, I actually will be posting some new interviews.、Uh, we have kind of a backlog of interviews that have been broadcast, but I've never had a chance to repackage them into podcast form,、uh, and so I'm going to be taking some extra time that I've found on my hands now that I'm not working full time. Uh, and editing them up and posting them on the podcast stream. So look forward to maybe one every week or so、uh, over the next couple of months, at least the next couple of months,、uh, and、uh, those will be just kind of popping up here and there.、Uh, after that, we'll just have to see what happens.、Uh, I mean, it's been my absolute pleasure hosting the show over the last three years or so,、uh, getting to know Taiwan with all of you. 
Uh, it's been really wonderful getting this kind of weird vantage point on Taiwan, where I just got to have really interesting conversations with smart, interesting people about all manner of stuff related to Taiwan. I mean, that's it's it's been a great experience for me. Uh, for anybody who's been listening along for the last couple of years, thank you so much. I hope that it's been uh, a good experience for you as well. Uh, on that note, I'm going to sign off for today, but not quite forever. As I said, we still have a little bit more time to talk about Taiwan together. So for ICRT and Taiwan Talk, I'm Keith Menconi. Talk to you next time. <laughs>